You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Yeah, buddy. Yeah, buddy. Yeah, buddy. Ladies, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Nine Finger Chronicles. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and today is episode two of the fall sessions with my man, Aaron Blisey, and we are going to break it all down today. We're going to break down uh, how we hunt, where we hunt, how we access those locations. We're going to talk about different access routes to staging, to bedding, to destination food sources, to travel corridors. Uh, We're going to talk about what some of our favorite uh, strategies are. And and, and each one is really different, right? If I'm going to hunt a bedding area, it's going to be a different strategy than if I hunt a staging area or if I hunt a travel corridor or some kind of pinch point or destination food source. I think you guys are getting the idea here. And so the cool thing, the thing that I really like about this episode is that there is a a lot that is the same between Aaron and myself when it comes to strategy, but there's also a lot that is different. And so listen very closely in this episode about the the similarities and then the differences between our strategy and the end goal is the same, right? So what this tells you is that there's more more than one way to kill a deer and uh, that's what this conversation is about today and hopefully you guys uh, enjoy it. Uh, I know I enjoy, uh, I've, I've been enjoying these conversations with Aaron and uh, and so that's why we're going to do more of them. So here's the deal. I've had a lot of this, and I because we are talking about access routes and we're talking about strategy. I have every 
not every day, but almost every day, I have someone reach out to me with a map. And on this map, they, um, they're saying, hey, Dan, I, I'm having some trouble with this. Or what would you do in a scenario like this? And I try, to, I try to answer as many of those as I possibly can. And most of the conversations are really good. Most of the conversations, uh, I start to ask questions about the, the land, uh, the people respond, and we have a really good constructive uh, powwow about that particular land. Now, if, you're, if you get frustrated because I'm not saying do this, because each property is different. And you'll hear this in this conversation today on how Aaron hunts ag versus how he hunts big woods, right? You need a completely different strategy. You need to know the differences in the landscape. Each one's gonna require something different. And so if you reach out to me and go, hey, Dan, I, I want to uh, talk about this this piece of public and I want to know how to access. I found, I found some uh, points during scouting. I want to know how to, to access them or how to hunt it. And then I start asking questions to you about, okay, is it thick in there? Where, where's the destination? Is there any destination food in the area? Uh, is there any water? Is there any, you know, where's it thick versus where it's wide open? Where's the parking lot? So all these questions have to be answered in order for you to, in my opinion, to put a well-planned attack on said property in order to try to locate deer, right? I I can't just come, I can't just go, here's what you need to do. You know, if you you say, hey, this is where I park and this is where I saw deer sign, well, there's a lot that goes into it. So don't get frustrated and and end the conversation and not respond to me when I start, you know, asking questions back to you. You know, I, I can't do that. And th- I don't think anybody listening should do that. And that's the difference in the level, right, of understanding how deer move because it's different for every single property. And, and so not only do I ask those questions to people, but you need to be asking those questions to yourself. What's, what's this? What's this? Now, by no means do you have to get that technical. You can go out and hang a tree stand and hunt. But if you really want to understand deer movement, you want to understand thermals, you want to understand wind direction, food sources, travel corridors, staging areas, bedding areas, how deer use all that stuff, then, then you got to ask yourself all those questions. And so uh, it, it's the questions, really, that uh, it's the questions that you need to ask. And, and that's going to lead you down a path to finding more information about the properties that you hunt. Had to shut off my air conditioner there. Started kicking in. Now, here's how this works. Uh, we got to do some commercials right now. So uh, huge shout out to Tethered if you're looking for uh, saddle hunting equipment. Uh, you got to go check out Tethered. They're they're probably the most popular, if I had to guess, uh, amongst the saddle hunting community. And it's because they've created a very large, very educated um, uh, community themselves that is full of people who are getting the job done uh, in this run and gun, very mobile uh, approach to hunting. And so they have platforms, they have climbing sticks, they have saddles, and, and then all the saddle hunting accessories that you need. Stand by on social media. As soon as you hear this, go check out my social feed. Uh, in the next couple of days, I'm going to be walking through 
all of my uh, saddle hunting equipment, my climbing sticks that I'm going to be using, my saddle, my platform, and then any accessories that I'm going to be using. It's very simple. And so uh, go check out tetherednation.com, wasparchery.com. I'm going to lead with the discount code NFC20, and that's going to get you 20% off of your purchase within Wasp. Dude, love the heads, man. They are most most of their heads are still made in America. They are made from the best materials possible. The design is is what I like because they're damn near indestructible and they cause a lot of damage whenever they hit uh, their target, right? Soft tissue they absolutely destroy. They're tough through bone and heavy, you know, cartilage and stuff like that. And it what that does is it all ultimately does what a broadhead is designed to do and that's cause as much damage as humanly possible which creates blood loss and that's why I love and I'm very confident with wasps so go check out wasparchery.com uh, vortexoptics.com man I'm going to tell you right now uh, I love the guys that work there I love the products right every time a products a product comes my way or I purchase a product I know that because of my experience with this company i know that i'm getting a lot you know a bang for my buck and with the western season approaching here uh, pretty soon then you know you you got to focus on the optics not necessarily the deer optics but if you're going to go west you know there's a lot more open spaces you're probably going to need a a different magnification you're going to need a potentially a spotting scope you need to make sure your rangefinder is on point and vortex offers all of those and they offer the vip warranty which just means that if you break it smash it destroy it a bear eats it and then poops it out and you're able to find it then you then you can put it in a box i'd rinse the poop off of it first but put it in a box send it back to vortex they will fix it for free and then send it back to you because that's that's what they want lifelong customers uh they also have apparel company of vortex gear tons of cool things uh uh, shirts hoodies hats rain jackets uh, tons of clothing there that that's actually pretty cool so go check out that Uh, vortexoptics.com and we have two more real quick hunt stand if you are looking for a a what are we looking for we're looking for public we're looking for private we're we're e-scouting you know we can't be in the woods all the time you know the ability to organize your trail cameras up-to-date satellite imagery everything that a serious hunter needs at their fingertips all times and you're able to document and journal everything that you find and then you're able to ref easily reference that stuff so uh uh, go check out huntstand.com read up on all the functionality and then while you're there go check out their pro whitetail platform that is it's a bit of an upgrade but uh so many cool things uh that are, are going on with that that upgrade and then uh brand new this year i was able to go out and use it two days ago Uh, i have some branches uh, or some some trees that have grown up in my yard or in my garden and i took the old woodman's pal and i hacked them and it's sharp and it's heavy or not like it's dense and it's not necessarily heavy but it's a made in america product it's uh it's that tool that you want in your truck on your hip 
uh, four-wheeler. It's like a habitat tool. It's got a hook on it. It's got a, a sharp blade. You can hack. You can clear shooting lanes. You can, uh, you know, get branches and bushes out of the way. The company's been around since 1941, so they're established. Again, made in America. And when you hold it in your hand, you know it's well-built. It's very well-built. And they have... Uh, they have a whole bunch of uh, different options to choose from. So go check out woodmanspal.com. And there we go. I got some new one. I got some new guys coming up on uh, some new sponsors that we're going to be talking about coming up July 1 and also June 1. So uh, stay tuned for that. And uh, then once those kick in, I'm not going to be doing so many commercials. I'll, I'll start a rotation. So uh, huge shout out to the companies that uh, support this podcast. Please go out and support those companies. And follow me on Instagram. Go to iTunes. Leave a five-star review. Let everybody know that the Nine Finger Chronicles is one of the realest podcasts about deer hunting and hunting, period. So... Uh, We'll talk to you at the back end. Good vibes and uh, enjoy this episode. Three, two, one. All right, we're, we are back with episode number two of the fall sessions. And today I wanted to talk this, this usually my, all my ideas kind of pop into my head when I'm in the shower or on the toilet. <laughs> so so uh, the, I guess that's where I do most of my thinking only because it's the only place in my house that is quiet enough for me to hear my own thoughts. So, uh, Aaron, how, how, yep. how has your last week been? Good, a good week. Good, good. Yeah. We just come off my, well, you know, as we're recording this, just come off mother's day yep. and you know, had a good weekend there trying to put a new lawn in uh you know i built my house last year so trying to get the lawn going did a lot of stuff there but man you know we talked a little bit about it last week you know the farmers are getting the crops in the ground still and you know here in michigan we need some rain um you know we're dry real dry and you know to get to get those you know spring plots or even just you know the ag ground and the farmers get those things out of the ground the, their crops and everything we need some rain pretty bad right now but yeah we're, we're, it's going good yeah we're sitting at least where i'm at we're sitting pretty in iowa as far as rain is concerned I, I think we could probably use a little more you know once all the crops are in we could probably use just a little bit more i always feel like on wet years or wet wet summers tend to lead to bigger antlers and i'm sure there's a oh, yeah. i'm sure there's a correlation there just like out west the guys who chase elk and whenever there's a a mild winter with a wet spring and they're able to have plenty of vegetation the elk and the mule deer seem to have bigger antlers at least what that's what i'm told i i i see trends like that definitely and you know we're still early i mean we're still in may so we got some time but a nice like slow rain for a full day would be nice to have that for sure For sure. I saw a picture on maybe it was Instagram of your daughter with like a medal around. Is she in gymnastics or something? Dance. Dance. She's she's pretty heavy into dance. Yep. Okay. Okay. My daughter is in dance too, but she's not in. They have this division called the all-star division. And really all that means is you're paying more money for more time to (laughs) dance. And I think you can agree like dance is can be a very expensive uh, endeavor if you're not prepared for it 
Dude, my daughter's five, and yeah. she she the thing is, dance season. You know, she's just this is her second year doing it. It's so long though; it starts yeah. in like September, and then, you know, it ends in April. Yeah, it ends in April, so it's a long season. But I'll tell you this: so one of my good friends and my co-host David Riley, he, his two daughters are older than my daughters, and they are. Like it's like a full time job for them. They're yeah. very good. They're they're known nationally. Um, I think uh, I think both of his daughters are two time national champions. Wow. They are very good. But like I hear him talk about and like how much they spend a year. It is crazy right. how much they like, and it's the time invested, but also the money. Like I remember him saying like one of, one of his daughters came off the stage one time like there was a lady wanting to buy her costume for stupid money walking off the stage. Yeah. Like, and I'm like, Holy cow. What am I about ready to get myself into? Because it's like, you almost got to take on another full-time job just to pay for that. It's, it's so expensive. Yeah. So right now she's in two classes and she goes two Mm -hmm. times a a week. If, if we bumped her up to the next level, it would be like five nights a week and it would be, Oh man, I I, I want to say like I want man, what was it like seven thousand dollars a year, and that oh my gosh. and that and that <laughs> does not include that does not include having to pay for the costumes, having to pay for the additional travel because they they would then travel to different locations and mm-hmm. uh, they would do hotels and you got to eat and all that other shit and I'm just like Jesus like. We could probably afford it, but I just like, I can't get past having to spend that much money on a kid activity. So much. Your daughter's a little older, right? Was she 10, She's 10. 11? She's 10. 10. Yeah. So yeah. So David's youngest daughter's right around that age. So I know how much they do it. They, they do it like that, you know, about yeah. four or five times a week. And then, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday is like, those are regionals and, yep. and dances that they're all weekend. They're there. And it's like, man. And I mean, they're traveling to Missouri, uh, right. you know, Georgia or wherever they travel all over. It's right. not just in Michigan. Right. So, so the only, the <laughs> only thing that's really holding me back is check out this spectrum. My daughter really loves dance, but now she's like, dad, I want to put a lot of energy towards wrestling. And so now she's, now she wants to be a wrestler as well. And, and I'm like, that's the own, like, yes, yes. Anything wrestling. Yes. I'll pay for anything you want to do wrestling because I know that the alternative then is if she's not in wrestling, then it's, she wants to be all in on dance and I just don't want to pay that money. So, uh, a pair of rest, uh, you know, a singlet and a pair of wrestling shoes is, uh, way cheaper than, uh, than a full-time dance. You're just gonna have to get another job. Go back to cubicle life. Yeah, right. I don't know about that, man. <laughs> I don't know about that. All right. Uh, today's episode. Uh, I was kind of hinting at it earlier. Here's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about things like bedding areas, staging areas. I want to talk about terrain features like uh, potentially saddles and ridges and spur ridges. I want to talk about destination food, and I want to talk about. Uh, that bed to food pattern, but ultimately with the end game of 
how do, where do I put my tree stand locations in these, in these areas? And so I think that's the topic of conversation uh, today. I want, I want this to be a, we've already done our scouting type mm-hmm. episode. We've identified the bedding. We've identified the staging. And then how do we get our tree stands in there? And how do we get our access routes in it and stuff like that? Do you, do you have a specific method that you use when trying to identify tree stand locations? So I'm, Man, I'll tell you what, I, I'm I'm almost a hundred percent run and gun. So I'm I'm yeah. going in with everything on my back mm-hmm. and hanging it, and then taking it down and yada yada. So like in some of my farm country stuff that's really tight and, and small wood lots and everything, I will do set set locations in there just so like if I got to sneak in and there might be a deer bedded close by or something like that, I can sneak in, don't have to hang everything. But I'll tell you this. When I'm out there looking for a stand location in an area that I know I want to be in, that I've scouted before, and, you know, a lot of times doing spring scouting, summer scouting, I'll pick out the tree. Like, okay, it's the the tree right there. It's up in the crotch. It's about 18 feet up. I want my, you know, platform here, yada, yada, all that stuff. I'll put it in like an app or whatever. But then when it comes back to the fall and you're ready to hunt it, there's always something that's different. Mm-hmm. There's always I mean, there's foliage usually on the tree, the trees, but it might be a little different when that you're, you know, you're thinking. And uh, for instance, last year we were on some Hunsum Public in northern Michigan, and we went into an area. It was the last night to sit, and I had never been in the area, but it was a, it was an inside corner, but it was a staging, staging area kind of transition just into the timber off an inside corner of uh, Destination Food, and dude. There had to have been 10 different hot trails coming into this field. None of them were intersecting. It was just like they all, like, are cattle paths going to, you know. And I, I had a guy filming me, and I'm like, I'm sitting there for trying to figure out, oh, you know, this tree would be good for right here, but then I can't shoot those four runways. I only can shoot these two. So I'm, like, trying to do the numbers game. And ultimately, it's just like, Okay, that one's gonna be the best one. The numbers are the best for me there. Let's do that one. You know, yeah. um, I'm terrible. I'm terrible. I will sit on the sit on the ground and look around and look for 20 minutes and waste 20 minutes. When a lot of times you just need to freaking go with your gut and get in the tree. Yeah, honestly. Yeah. So. Yeah, I've fallen victim to overthinking. I feel like a hundred times. You know. You know. In the last episode, we talked about uh, when we got serious. And when, you know, all the times we kind of failed a little bit, but one of my biggest failures was walking into, we're talking running gun here, walking into a, uh, a property and then backtracking. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I put my scent all the way in, in the timber already. And then I mm-hmm. was like, well, I better back up and come into right here. <laughs> How many deer would come in and then they'd stop maybe not blow per se, but they, they knew something was up and then they would go the long way around or they would, they would flank me real hard and they would still go back, but they would go around me. And so, and, and, you know, and then some did blow and, and that was, that was really frustrating, but that did teach me, Hey, you got to be very picky about where you're going to set up. And you just, sometimes you just got to get in a tree because mm-hmm. they're ultimately, you just, ultimately the goal is to get in a tree, and maybe it's not the the right night, the first night, but the next night 
or the next day or whatever the next time you can get into the woods is, then you can find that tree. Yep. For sure. Yeah. You know, I have a scenario too. It's on a, it's on a really hard transition on one of the farms I hunt. Um, if I can paint the best audio picture. So to the North is a wet and it, you can't, you can't access from there. Okay. So I'm on the transition and from transition from the wet area to some terrain. Okay. And I'm kind of in the bottom, but it, but it next down, I, it's like, I'm right where this corner wraps around. It's all timber, mm-hmm. but where the wet area, I'm right on that hard transition. So the only access I have is from the South. Okay. I can't come in from the North cause the, it's too wet. So I'm hunting, hunting, a, a scrape and a really hard transition where, you know, there's two deer trails that come right together and it's, it's, it's a really good transition spot. But the thing is, is from where the trees located with the prevailing wind, it's north of the trail and I'm coming in from the south. So one of my biggest pet peeves is coming in from the south, crossing the trail that you're hunting and then getting up the tree, turning around and hunting that trail. I hate doing that. Like I, I try not to do that. So what I have to do in this certain location is I have to actually go like west, along far away west, loop back around, and how the how the water kind of loops it loops back to the north. I gotta kind of get on that north transition line and walk that whole transition line back. I have to go, you know, a couple hundred yards out of my way to, to hunt this location, just so I don't have to cross the trail of where I'm gonna be killing that deer. And I know. A lot of people are like, well, cross the trail right when you're going to have the arrow in the deer. I understand that. But still, I try to like, I try to cross all my T's and dot my I's and just try yeah. to do it. You know, I don't want any, any extra scent that I have to have in there. So I just, I just do a big loop and come around. That's one of those things like, you know, I don't like going across a feature that I'm trying to hunt and then getting up in the tree, turn around and hunting that feature. I, I, I really hate that. Oh, dude. I love that. Like, dude, I, I, what you just uh, described is exactly what I do every running gun. So really? Yes. So I'm going to, I'll use an example. I got this staging area that I absolutely love before these deer cross a road to go into a, um, uh, a destination ag field. There's a thicket. Right, So there's a thicket, and there's a CRP field, and then there's a road, and then there is the ag field across the road. And so these deer come off the point of this ridge way down, and then they all work their way up into this staging area. So what I do on this ridge is I stay low. I parallel the ridge as low as I possibly can go, and then right to this tree stand location, I'll take a hard left turn straight uphill to my my tree stand location my wind is blowing in my face on that 90 degree turn okay so i'm i the wind is to my face as i approach the tree stand when i'm up in the stand there's ground scent obviously but with the thermals and with the um the thermals in a consistent let's see what direction it'd be a west wind all my scents blowing over top of that trail so if I get in there early enough, you know, your ground scent over time probably does some dissipating. And the goal here is, is if there is a shooter, shooter caliber deer that comes through, 
and his nose is to the ground and he catches my my ground set or he catches my air scent maybe the thermals have shifted a little bit and they're dropping down man he's he's within shooting range at that point yep and so i do this i i call it the rule of 90 or where i i will walk in whatever the access route is and then take a hard 90 degree turn towards my tree stand location in hopes that if I'm going to get busted, it's going to be in the shooting lane. Because I feel like there's times where you have a moment where the deer goes, what's, yep. th- what's that? And you're already drawn back by then. That's that's yep. that's the ultimate goal. Does it work out like that every time? No, it doesn't. But I, I yeah. want to go a step farther with it because I have an instance from Iowa okay. on a seven-and-a-half-year-old very mature deer yep. and i have an instance a couple instances from michigan on and 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 basically i'm not saying you're wrong i i love i love the dynamic i love yep. the you know the what you have and what i have mm-hmm. we're hunting two vastly different areas okay yep. so this is really cool to, to see this so a deer over my shoulder right here i shot him in 2019 in iowa and that scenario happened he's a seven and a half year old deer scored in the mid 180s and what had happened it was uh midday and i watched him that morning uh chase some does out in front of me and then he goes up and and he he beds this doe around this this pond i feel like okay i couldn't see him but he was going up there i think just to kind of spend the day up there with her we had to get out of the tree we're losing batteries and cameras and everything we had to get out of the tree for about an hour hour and a half so when we left, we had to leave and go by him. So what we did is we went, did a big loop around, okay? And we were in this ditch, and it's a CRP field that would come all over, like down, down like it, it's high on both sides, and it come down, and there's a CRP uh, cedar ditch that was in the middle. Mm-hmm. And we were on the point of it. So we get back in the tree, and we come in from the backside, and it's thick. You know, it's we're thick in the tree, and – and um when this deer ended up showing up, he comes on the backside of the tree where we had walked in on. And when we saw him, he was at like, I don't know, right at 22 yards and he hits our ground set. Okay. Talking about a seven and a half year old, like just different specimen hits our ground set, walks to the base of my tree. And I shoot him at 17 yards. Now, a three-year-old do that basically same thing hit my ground set and bug the hell out yeah so that's where like it's very very situational dependent and very um uh what am i trying to say like location dependent of like where geographically you might be you know i like that i had to you know i've been hunting in michigan my whole life because i was taught to like everything you're on eggshells during during the fall you have to be on point to try to because when i go anywhere else in the midwest it's almost like I'm still doing that stuff, but it like, it's almost a little easier for me. Like I'm crossing my teeth and doubting all my eyes. And it seems like things happen more frequent and more often. And that, it, you know, if, does that make sense? Oh like, dude, I, I get it. Very location. I get it. I I've hunted Michigan before. Yeah. And so when I went to Michigan <laughs> coming from Iowa, I was like, man, this doe group came through and she was so nervous. I've never seen an animal. Like I, I picked her up probably 70 yards. 
my wind was consistently going away from her, but she was just look like she was looking up in the tree. She had, she had a, probably a, a yearling with her and then a, a two year old, you know, another two year old with her. That was her, her two uh, offspring from the last two years. Is that what I had to guess? And they had their, their, uh, heads down and they were munching and stuff, but she was like, bing, bing, bing. Like she was a spazoid. And then she, they came, man, I, I was, I was going to shoot her, but she came really close, but then something spooked her out. And I don't know what it was. Maybe, maybe my wind was swirling and I didn't know it, but, uh, then a, a spike buck came through like a, like a half fork, half spike. And he was real nervous. And I was like, is this, is this what Michigan is like? Because Jesus, man, I feel sorry for these guys in, in Michigan <laughs> where that's what every hunt is like. And so, man, in, in Iowa, if you, if I was to compare my limited time in Michigan in my time in Iowa, it's just night and day deer are way relaxed there. You know, you can get away with, you know, catching some ground scent. Now I've, I've had yep. a big mature buck. Uh, in my day, catch my ground scent and just leave immediately, blow at me. But that was like, it happened real quick. I want to run an idea by you. Okay. And I feel, I came up with this theory, maybe it, I didn't come up with it, but I, I, I wrote an article about it several years ago. And I think I called it something like, a deer can tell time based on the potency of, of the scent that they're smelling. Meaning if a coyote walks by an hour ago, they're able to, their, their noses are so good. They can say, well, I smell a coyote, but the scent is not as strong. So there's no need to be afraid of it because it's it or, Oh my God, there is something here right now. I'm going to get out of here. And so I think that if, you know, the ground scent that I take, and a deer, you know, deer smell it, they'll identify it, but they won't get freaked out about it because it was four hours ago when I took, when I walked there. And so over time, my scent and all those molecules or whatever has had time to half-life and half-life. And, and so the potency of that, uh, of that scent is not, uh, is not as concentrated. Therefore, they're not afraid of it. Yeah, I, I mean, I wish I, I agree with you. Your theory, I, I agree with you. I think there's some caveats to it as far as, yeah. you know, let's say you come in in, the, in a morning hunt and there's some dew on the ground. I yeah. think that that might, that scent might sit there a little bit longer, but if yeah. it's kind of a dry, dry time, like mm-hmm. I do agree though. I, 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 it's like, you know, right away they, they, it's almost like they stepped in a mouth trap or something like they're just like, Whoa, you know, yeah. like we're, we're, it's crazy. Uh, I do think there's something to that theory, though, um, because in another thing, do you have talking about coyotes? Get off on a little tangent here. Do you do you see a big correlation in coyotes like disrupting deer? Like we, ha- I see a lot of coyotes amongst deer in fields and everything like that in the fall. Or I mean, they they kind of bug out a little bit, but it's really it's not that bad. Like the coyotes really you know, they obviously live amongst each other, the deer right. and the coyotes, but do you see like every time like a coyote comes in the field, a deer just completely bug out all the time? I've seen it both ways. 
I've seen a field full of deer, you know, 15, 10, 15 deer, completely tails up, run as hard as they can away from a coyote that was trotting, one coyote that was trotting. Meanwhile, I've seen on one, on one field, all these deer, probably more than, I would say, I would say 20, there's a big bottom that I hunt. And in this bottom, it's a, a big ag field. And then there's a, a river on one side and big timber on the other. And so on one side, all the deer were feeding. And then on the other side, there was two coyotes and they were going crazy. They were howling and, and yipping and all that stuff. Not a head lifted up over on that, on those deer. I've seen, I've seen real close encounters where a, a doe and uh, a doe group was feeding in this uh, alfalfa field two coyotes kind of walked by and the, they just lifted their heads up. They identified them and then they put their heads down. So, and just like anything hunting related, I, I could tell you a story where deer were spooked by coyotes. And then I can also tell you a story that deer were not spooked by coyotes. So yeah. your guess is as good as mine. Yeah. I was just curious. So you brought up the coyote thing that struck. I had a, a set earlier last year and, uh, about eight does came out in the albine field and I'm watching everything and they're kind of, you know, they're walking a little bit, but the tails slowly go up and then they come down and it's just like, they're kind of looking around like, man, there's gotta be something in the field. And I looked out. Yeah. You know, they just kind of flank them. They'll, they'll just kind of walk around them just like, but yeah, it's, it's hit or miss. It's 50, 50. It depends on, you know, I think if the doe has got, you know, babies with her or, right. or whatnot, or time of year. Like there's a lot of times in the summer when you're scouting alfalfa fields, there'd be a hundred deer in the field and coyotes would be amongst all of them yeah. and they won't even do anything. Right. And I think, like you said, I think a lot of that has to do with time of year. Do mm-hmm. I feel like a coyote is going to try to go get a brand new fawn or a very little fawn? Yes. It's, it's easy for them. But in November or, you know, the winter months when the, the coyote is going to have to work for that, that even a young doe, right? It would have to work for it. Um, I feel like most of the time coyotes are eating rabbits and, and you know, mm-hmm. all that stuff, so, you know, like yep. a, a small game and things like that. So I feel like there's, a, there's easier prey for a coyote than a deer, but they are op- opportunistic and they will go after the young ones or the injured ones. For sure. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, do you have, do you have a favorite terrain feature, uh, or, or scenario that you like to focus on like a bedding area or a travel corridor or, or a pinch point or something like that? I would say probably my all time favorite terrain feature would be, um, I would call it a secondary Ridge, but there are these little micro ridges amongst uh in a hill country setting where you can't hardly even see them on a map um you got to get boots on the ground to see them and they might only be 30 by 40 yards big but it's kind of like a little bench and Mm -hmm. it's like a secondary ridge off a bigger ridge um i call those spur ridges yep Yep. that is probably you know that is probably up there i I really you're you're gonna find a lot of sign there they can be difficult to hunt as far as, you know, thermals and wind uh, and trying to get that to be true um, because those are, I don't know, I've 
the wind can be like the working class guys would say a whiskey wind. You, you might get some, uh, some different winds in there. Yeah. That'd be one. The other one, um, I really like is like in a, like in an ag ground. I hunt a lot of flat, flat ground, finding a terrain feature that might only be about a two to three foot, like difference in mm-hmm. grade. Mm-hmm. And if I can find that, where a hard transition of timber if it, it might be like out of olive to you know some oaks you know a transition right there there's usually always going to be in in the scenarios i hunt there's usually always going to be like a community scrape right there man give me that 10 out of 10 times in the right area and i'm going to kill a, a pretty good deer right there yeah. I, I love that scenario so when you say transition then do you also mean edge like it's yeah, created that's what I mean. yeah edge. okay yep. all right yep. all right yeah, man, dude, finding that thick. So, and so let me, let me tell you about that, um, uh, scenario that I just presented to you earlier with the, you know, I was taking the 90 degree in uphill. And so why I love this state, why I love this is it be, is it because it checks off all these boxes. It has a spur Ridge coming up on a long Ridge and on the top is all staging and further a little bit down is bedding so what you have here is a a really good terrain feature meets really good vegetation that opens up into big timber so now you have edge and you have um so you have uh some oaks in there so there's some food and so you, you what you're doing is you're just checking the boxes of all these things that deer where deer like to travel and i always try to find two like try to check off two of those. Like I'm not just sitting up on a terrain feature, but I'm sitting up on a terrain feature that has edge on it or that uh, meets uh, a spur ridge or they're at the end of its bedding or, 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 but ultimately has to have good access to get to those places. And so I'm always trying to find the, the, you know, we talk about the place within the place. So, Hey, here's a good, here's a good ridge. But where on this ridge, oh, here's where uh, two trees fell down in a storm two years ago. So now it's all thick and nasty in there because more sun has hit the ground. It's created, you know, a high stem count lower to the ground. Well, you best believe there's going to be rubs around that. Or like you said, a some kind of scrape where deer have now started to bed in that. They feel comfortable or, or stage in it and, and then, you know, just hang out. And, and so now you're stacking the odds in your favor. And that's, those are the type of locations that I look for. Yeah. And honestly, those spur ridges as you would, as you would say, those get me so excited because normally like you talked, you know, there's, they're usually about halfway up the hill, you know what I mean? Or they're usually somewhere in that, that transition of, of a good hill location but when you get in the bottom, it, it's difficult. Also, mm-hmm. it can be done, but you get a lot of if you get, if you're in a bowl, you'll get some swirling effect with the wind. It's very it's. I'm not a master at the wind and thermals in, in hill yeah. country. You might want to talk to like a Jake Bush or someone like that. But, um, I love trying to figure it out. That's yeah. why I like the 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 scenario in ag that I told you about. With the flatter, you get more consistent wind. Yeah. Um, in those areas and I can really get in there and fine tune some areas, but I like you talked about finding the spot within the spot. And I have a perfect example for that. I've got a section of five acres of timber. That's it. It's surrounded by complete ag. 
okay? There's just a – it looks like a turd in a punch bowl mm-hmm. out in the middle of an ag field, okay? And, you know, it's flatter and pancake, but you'll get that two to three foot difference in elevation, and you'll go in there, okay? If you walk this little section of, of timber, you're going to find a giant scrape in the, under the same tree every year. Yeah. But that is not the spot, and I'm going to tell you why. I've monitored this over the last six seasons, okay? I'll put a camera on it. I'll let it soak, a cell cam on it, whatever. I will get pictures of deer and bucks on that camera, but I will never get pictures of good bucks on daylight in that camera. I moved. I found this little elevation change, and it's not much at all, okay? But I think what helped here is that it is in that it's right on the edge okay and there are some white oaks right there as well so i think that's another box you can check right there now where the scrape was before where i get all the dark pictures it's just like kind of monotonous it's flat there's no terrain change there's really not a lot of cover out there is cover but it's not tied up to it. it's kind of like a, a crab apple tree just a yeah where trees don't really grow in there but i'm telling you you go about 50 60 yards in one direction and there's a scrape there it might not be as big of a scrape i will get daylight buck pictures on that all the time and that's where you can that's where i can kill them yeah yeah that makes sense man um what's your take on bedding like do you, do you try to get tight into bedding ever it depends because uh in ag, yeah, I do, and I've got some. I've got some areas where I can get about sixty yards from bedding. Last year, I, I I did. I got about sixty yards from a buck that I knew was in there, and I ended up killing him like right at last, just right before last yeah. light. And I was about sixty yards, but I had that terrain feature. Mm-hmm. It was about just a little hump that I could get up in a tree just enough. And um, so in ag, I am tending to get as close to the bedding as I can now. You know, in the in the timber setting, yeah, I'm still trying to get as close. But where a lot of the timber that I hunt, I try to correlate it with food, and I I, I try to, um, I really try to hone in on like if if an acorn crop is like a bumper bumper crop that year, and then some bed some bedding will will definitely, you know, be better. There there's right. some very specific bedding buck bedding, on a piece of ground that I hunt is it is very dependent on the bumper crop and, and what acorns are there. If that is the case, then I am going to hone in on as get as close as I can. That might only be 150 yards, which I still think is kind of far. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm hunting a lot of cedar swamp edges and the cedar swamps. I think the ones that I'm hunting are pretty wet and I don't think the deer are bedding that far in there. Right. So, I think they're more on the edges where it's still dark timber. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get as close as I can, but if I can find a bumper crop of acorns, that first stop from that bedding, it might be 150 yards from it. That's where I'm going to stop. If I can get a little tighter, I will, but more likely I I can't get right on their bed. Like a, you know, like a Greg Litzinger, like he's so good at getting right on beds and, and being able to beat that deer to the bed. And I, I, so hard to do that yeah it's difficult especially and i'll tell you two two scenarios here one i have a bedding area that i'm thinking about right now 
and they have the high ground. So it's kind of a knob and they bed on the top of this knob. And so no matter what direction I come to hunt, there is a potential that they're in there and they're watching the low ground. So they would watch me come up. And so I don't hunt it that much because I feel like they know that I'm coming, right? Uh, the other one is a staging area or, well, it's a, it's a bedding area. Um, and I'll, I'll talk more in depth about this one later, but it's a, across the creek is a bedding area and they cross it. They cross the creek, they come into the, the staging area, and then they, uh, they head on out to the egg field. And I have a tree stand on the northeast corner of that. Well, they, they can't see me walk in because of the bank of the creek. But once I start to climb the tree, they can see, they can see me climb the tree. And mm-hmm. so do, they may not necessarily bump, but they will walk away from where the disturbance was, even if I get in hours early, like multiple hours early. And so that's another hard one to hunt. So I typically am not, dude, I don't focus on bedding areas too much unless I have hard, hard evidence that I need to get, get in there on a morning hunt. But I'm, yeah. but I'm not, man, I, I'm, I'm not focusing on bedding areas that much. I'm, I'm not either when it comes down to like, if, if you're thinking about where to go hunting or what you're going to do that evening, betting is not in my top three. No, that. Nope. You know, I, I, I am more, more, more often going off historical data on a scrape that I have. Mm-hmm. I love to hunt scrapes even in October. I love to do that. Um, I'm betting. Yeah. I don't really hone in on that too much. And you bring up that, that hill country, like where the beds, are right on the top of the knob. Yeah. I have that same scenario. And uh, actually, it's funny you said that because you you described about the same situation I have. Now, there's a family group of does that beds on this knob. And I'm trying to flank them in the – or, like, you know, more, more or less the time frame of, you know, in the rut phases of right. where a buck would be coming downwind. Well, I have a scenario that – this uh this spring i was scouting that area i cannot get into this these it's like a, a group of three ridges and they're on the middle ridge and it's surrounded in pine trees and they're not they're not like mature pine trees you could get up in them but it'd be pretty difficult well there was a, there's this little hub where the pine trees didn't grow um like where the pines kind of meet the timber mm-hmm. and it's just south of that that ridge but they're on the middle ridge and then there's another one and then me Probably, I'm going to say it's about 150 to 200 yards away from that bedding. Now it's south of the bedding. What makes it so great, what I think is going to be great with it is the access. I can get in there really good. The only crappy thing is it's got to be very wind specific. And when I was scouting this summer, I found a really good community scrape right in this area. And I'm like, I'm thinking on any north wind, or northwest wind, anything like that, I will have bucks that will come down on the bottom side of this ridge, and the thermals will pull down, and I think they could set check that whole ridge oh, yeah. system, oh, yeah. and I'll be able to kind of be right on the other side of them and flank them and kill them right there. That's what I'm hoping. Yeah, almost. You 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 almost put yourself into the position of uh, a deer, where you say, "How 
can I smell the most surface area from one location? Dude, I, I know exactly yep. what you're talking about. And, and uh, it's almost like a trail. There's probably a trail down there where all, a lot of deer uh, at some point in the day walk, but on a, whatever wind, they can smell all three of those ridges at one time Yeah, uh, on the same trail. Yeah. Yeah, I know exactly yep. what you're talking about. And so then you're you're just a hair further downwind off that trail. Yes, that's yep. all I am. Yep. And and it just so happens to be, and I think the reason why there is, there's a big scrape right there. And I think it's because the thermals pull everything from that ridge system right down to that hub. Yeah. And then it disperses from there. Cause I'm in the I'm in the bottom. I'm in the lowest part of the whole ridge system. Yeah. Um and I'm I'm on the south end and there's no ridges behind me. Mm-hmm. So I think what happens on any north wind, it's gonna hit me and then it's gonna disperse to the south. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's gonna swirl and come back. I think it's I think it's pretty bulletproof to be honest with you. Yeah. Man, I absolutely love that that type of location. But I don't hunt it that much because uh, they're very rare. They're very rare. Very rare. And that on top of Here's the scenario, like it has to be locked tight. And I know for, uh, it, it's almost like in a scenario like that, and I want you to tell me what you think of this. Those areas seem to be the, have the least consistent wind. You need to have, uh, the number one, a good thermal day mixed with a consistent wind. And because uh, the the scenario that I'm thinking about uh, is if the wind is not consistent or, uh, and it's maybe moving, you're, you're in a, a period of the day or a period of a, a storm front where the wind's going to go from south to north or east to west or something like that within the given day. But in the four hours that you're going to be there, it's going to be out of the west, let's say. My example is actually going to be out of the south. But if the wind is not heavy enough, what happens is the wind will blow and then it will breathe back in. It's almost like it's breathing. And so all of the low points, especially along this creek bed, my wind will blow out into this field that, you know, I I want the wind to blow out there. But then when the wind takes a breath, almost, it sucks everything back in. And then my my wind will just go right into the timber. And so I've had to learn I, I, I can only hunt that area on winds that are only like 50, over 15 miles an hour. Anything less than that, there's these breaks and pauses, and it just does not it, – it doesn't work because I get busted. I get busted a lot. I could see that for sure. And, and on my scenario, since I'm on the south end of this whole system, I think it's only going to be beneficial on a north wind. If it's a west wind, it's still good for me and good for the deer – but I just don't think the bucks will have the wind that they want to, to have to come down and check that ridge right. system where I'm at. It's got to be a north. I love the consistency you're talking about because I yeah. agree with you. I think, you know, almost like lungs opening up yep. and then closing, yep. opening them up and closing. Like, I really think that's a true thing. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Now, um, what's your – what what did – What's your favorite place to hunt? Like, uh, I think we kind of got off on a little tangent there. Uh, it doesn't sound like it's betting. I'm not a betting guy. I feel like if I was, if I could be patient and be an all day hunter, like, you know, from morning to night, hunt all day, I, I might hunt more betting areas, get in there in the morning. But because I don't hunt all day, 
I've made my, I've made other, you know, I, I've curated my strategy around different tactics. So what would you say your, your number one go-to uh, terrain feature or uh, location would be? Uh, flat ground and ag, a historical scrape that's in a, in a section of timber that is just thicker than dog hair in a dog's back around it. Yeah. And if I could, if I could paint my perfect picture, it would be, I'm planning an all day sit in there, but the buck's going to show up about 11 o'clock in okay. the morning. And I like it to be thick. Like, I just think it's really cool. You see these guys that like hunt you know, when they're filming, they look around them and like, they might only have like one pocket to a scrape. Yeah. Like, I think that's really cool because you're trying to place this deer here and that scrapes there for a reason. And he's coming in an area, his bedroom more than likely where he feels safe all the time. And he hits this scrape and you put an arrow through him. It's like, I just beat you. Yeah. I just beat you at your game and your house. That to me is the ultimate. That would be like my prototypical perfect scenario. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense, man. And here's where we differ again. I just, I don't hunt over scrapes. I, now I, I guess I shouldn't say, I, I say that because I definitely have scenarios in the past where, where there is a scrape within shooting range. All right. Mm -hmm. And but I, I can tell you this, I've never shot a deer over a scrape before. Uh, really? No, never. I've either, maybe I've watched him lay a scrape first, then shot it, then shoot, shot a deer, but never over top of a scrape. I, I, when I, when I scout and identify these places or, you know, even during the season, like in season scouting, I'll I'll, I will identify rubs and I will identify scrapes but if those rubs and scrapes are not in what i feel is a is that connection point where it's the the edge versus the staging area versus the you know and the bedding or the spur ridge or whatever if it uh, if it doesn't have those then i'm not worrying about it because then i usually say okay well that's done after shooting light and so i am i am more focused on the actual terrain features and most of the time there's sign in there, but I don't put my tree stand in a position based off of where a, a rub or a scrape is. Okay. Now I, I will, I will say there, if I'm fine, if I find a big hub scrape or a big community scrape, I'm not necessarily always setting up on it. Yeah. I am backtracking it when I'm scouting it. I'm backtracking it to find the first available food or a bed. Yeah. And like I had a scenario this, this spring, I was scouting, found a hub scrape, uh, all the ridges, all the wind dumps down to the scrape and it's just a thermal pull down to this scrape. Okay. And yep. I'm like, so then I started wind mapping it right there and I'm like, there's no way I can hunt this scrape, not right here. And that's why the scrape is there mm -hmm. is because these bucks can check this and they're getting every wind from this huge ridge system. So then I started backtracking. I thought I was going to find the bed within 60 yards of this scrape. Uh, a buck bed nope it was like 190 yards away from this bed or from the scrape and i found the bed and i'm like how do i hunt the bed well the bed wasn't wasn't great as far as like it looked like it was only 
betting when there was acorns because they he was on like an acorn ridge he was on on a point looking over some wet ground but he was also flanking that scrape and they're all over and it's only good when those acorns are going to be dropping i think yeah. so then i kind of go back to the middle between the scrape and between the bed i i know i can't hunt the scrape i know i can't hunt the bed uh just because of the thermals so i had to get off the main trail about 40 yards and I started wind mapping right there. Okay. Wind mapping with throwing milkweed and everything and, and trying to figure out my pull. It was a nine mile an hour wind out of the West that day. And so I put all mental notes in there because that's a great wind for me to get in there access. And then I figured a couple trees wind, but I got a tree pinned out and I'm, I'm, I'm 90 yards from the scrape and about the same from the bed maybe a little bit farther but i've got that good you know it's a good pocket there's a cedar a cedar thicket that kind of meets me and i'm in the hourglass part of it yep. i think if anything's right there i'm not necessarily hunting the, i'm hunting both features but i'm not hunting right on them okay. so it's very situational dependent as well okay yeah man I don't know about you, but this talk is getting me fired up. Like, I, I, want... I love this. I love this strategy type uh, stuff, yeah. especially when we can get as detailed as we've been getting here. Um, what are your thoughts on staging areas? Honestly, man, I don't hunt a ton of them. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not against them by any means. I just don't, you know, if I can find like a buffer strip and ag land where it might be like ag and then like there's maybe like tall CRP, like kind of going into the timber. I see a lot of bucks using that for, and it, it might be like 40 yards, you know, where, but it's tall. It's a big CRP. It's good cover. Yep. I might get in a scenario like that, but honestly, like the bedding, it's staging areas really aren't like a big big play for me unless it, it sets up really well gotcha okay man i love staging areas i absolutely love them and it's because i think i i don't know if i've pigeonholed myself in, into this way of thinking because i used to i used to get busted so much going into these bedding areas right and, and how dangerous we've already talked about that is is you know they're betting in an area for a reason and if if you're trying to move in on an animal that's bedded you you a have to know where they're going once they get up and that's never a guarantee or mm -hmm. you have to come in on a a way where they don't have the wind to their back in, in this particular access route so what i've done then is i've said to myself okay i'm i've started to focus on staging areas that was 15 years ago or whatever and so I'll tell you this, man. I once I made the decision to not necessarily focus downwind to bedding. Now I do that sometimes on a morning hunt, and in in, in a historic good, uh, in a historically good rut location, downwind to bedding. I I usually have a tree stand or a, a saddle platform already in these locations. They're pre-hung, and they're there for a reason. It's because they're they're good. Uh, but when it comes to run and gun, man, I just feel like a guy can get away with a lot more when he can identify the bedding area and then know where the staging area is. Now, I've, I, have, I, I very rarely hunt field edges anymore. So 
I had to be okay with seeing way less deer in a given hunt than, you know, because when I was young, I would be like, oh, I saw 25 deer today. And then, you know, I'd, I'd have a guy ask me, well, how many were within shooting range? And I'd be like, one, right? Uh-huh. And so you're like, what's the difference between seeing a deer at 200 yards and not seeing a deer at all? There's not there's not any difference because you can't shoot right. a bow. And so I was like, ah, kind of at an aha moment. So I started moving in to the timber. And so what that did was it allowed me to have more deer within shooting range. I, did I see less deer? Absolutely saw less deer. But I had more deer within shooting range. And mm-hmm. so I always, here's the scenario of this one, this one staging area that I love, absolutely love. Big, long ridge going deep into the, in this block of timber ag kind of all surrounding it but it's this one long timber and in it in this timber the closer you get to the field there is a drastic edge that starts this really thick i would i would put it at 40 yards 40 or 50 yards from where this thickness starts and it goes thick all the way into the or all the way to the field edge and so i drop down on one side of the ridge and then I do the same thing that I do, the 90-degree hook. But my wind now is um, it's blowing south or it's blowing out of the north. And so it's blowing over top of or it's blowing down into the low spot. And usually, depending on if it's a northwest or northeast wind, it either gets sucked out into the field or it gets sucked down into the bottom. And by the time it hits you know, the bottom, it's... it's I don't know, it's diluted enough to where I'm not really concerned about it. With that said, all these deer walk up and then they hit this edge and they just slow down. The bucks are making scrapes. There's there's uh, rubs, there's rub line on this one main trail. And so I can hunt this ridge system on a north wind or a south wind. It's just two different stand locations. But something about a staging area I, I absolutely love is the fact that they slow down and they hang out there. And so it gives you the opportunity to maybe throw a grunt or maybe do a light rattling sequence if you can see them, right? And it tightens every it just tightens everything down because staging areas are not big open timber. They're they're always mm-hmm. this concentration of maybe a five acre area on, on this specific example. And the, they're not dropping down way low. They're not walking the bottoms of the, the, the draws. They're not walking typically up top. And so that shortens it down again. So now, so you have the terrain feature, you have the edge and in, 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 in the, the staging area. So that's like three check marks right there. And I, dude, I don't know what it is, but I just am a, like, that's where I focus 90% of my attention these days is on staging areas. Do you see a trend? Because you're, I I do have some areas that I will throw a sit at on some staging areas. I yeah. uh, talked earlier about a cedar swamp and everything. So this is another farm by hunt that it's all timber yep. with some destination food. Now there is a there is a ridge system that runs through this. It's got all acorns on it, all acorn trees, and uh, so they bet on the on the back side of a ridge system of a ridge, and it's where the the turns into a cedar swamp too tight to it because once you get on top of that ridge they can see you so you got to be on the other side of it and that's where that's where all the acorns are and everything and that would be probably the 
the most prevalent staging area that I've thrown sits at. Um, but I agree with you. They're not very big and you're going to, you just get deer just milling around. Yeah. Now, do you see a trend as far as like, what is that like buffer zone from the destination food to that staging area? Like, do you see, is it a hundred yards? I know it's situational dependent, but on average, what are you seeing mostly? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'm trying to think here. So I think what we need to do is talk about a bed to food pattern. Let me think here. A bed to food pattern. And it's not like it's bedding, then it's a transition area, and then it's staging, and then it's destination food source in that order. I don't think it's in that order every time. I think sometimes it could be bedding because I have a river bottom uh property that I hunt where it's bedding then staging then travel corridor then destination food source so they're walking right up to the field edge and they're going right into the destination the destination egg field Mm -hmm. right so what they're doing is they're getting out of their beds and then they're milling around for a little bit and then they're taking off well and 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 that point sorry to cut you off when i see that that's when I see the deer bedding on the transition. Does that make sense? Oh, right, so like, right in the edge, right along the yes, edge. Right yes, right on the edge. So like yeah. that, that's when they, they'll get up, they'll mill around and then it's more like hit the staging and then destination food, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I think if, if it's good enough, let's, let's just say there's a, a, a bedding area that has an oak tree in it, man, sometimes a bedding area and a staging area could be very close to each other, if not the same, like the same one acre area. Yeah. You know, and then they, all they're doing is standing up, maybe hanging out for a little bit and then make their way to the oak stand or the oak flat or the, the, the ag field or the clover field or whatever, whatever the scenario might be. Um, and so when you're talking about how many yards it is, it's very hard to tell because everything is everything's different in every area, every every bedding area. And and so here's another thing I want to I want to comment on. A lot of people look for beds. I never look for beds because I feel in the in the areas that I hunt, deer bed in different areas every single day. If the mm-hmm. wind's out of the south, they have a brand new bedding area. If the wind's out of the north, they have a brand new bedding area. If the wind is, you know, and I've talked to guys who, well, let's just say there's a, a northwest wind, a west wind, a south wind. They may bed on the same ridge and they're just on different points of this this ridge point. I don't, I do not see that. I see extremely big shifts in bedding based off of wind wind direction change. And so it's hard for me to go and look for a bed and get excited. If let's just say I find this gigantic bed and I'm just like, well, obviously a deer here lays here repetitively, but at what wind direction does he lay here repetitive repetitively? And so if let's just say I, I, I just, I use my knowledge that I have and I say, okay, well, based off of this bed location, I'm thinking he lays here on a North wind. Well, I go in, I go in there on a northwest wind or a northeast wind, and he's not he's not there, or 
I, I try to get there in the morning and I set up on it because there's a north wind. It, it, it's it's not guaranteed. It's almost like the the scrapes that you um, uh, that you talked about. Like I feel ter- my and this is my opinion. I feel terrain is the biggest dictator in deer movement, meaning deer go through terrain a certain way every single time and unless they're chasing or or they get spooked or things like that but if they're they're calm they're going through they're walking on a ridge on a certain wind every single time and they're walking they're they're going into a bedding area on a certain wind every single time as opposed to well on this wind he may not be bedding here uh he may not be hitting this scrape so i don't know that's that's kind of a a thinking out loud type moment there. No, I agree with you. I mean, train is the most consistent, yep. consistent thought you can go from mm-hmm. in my opinion. Now, when I'm trying to find, you know, you were talking, go back to the scrape I talked about that was going to be, I knew it was going to be a specific reason. Like yeah. if I get these three check boxes or th- the wind's right, and it's the time of year and the acorns dropping. I know that's where I'm going to be because right. it's not a guarantee he's going to be in right. that bed. I am not that person. I know that, but right. that one time that he is, I want to be. I want. Hopefully, I'm there. You know right. what I mean? Um. So yeah, but I I agree with you. Like terrain is the only consistent. I shouldn't say the only consistent, but it is like the number one consistency that you can go off of to, you know predict deer movement right right oh man um and so you know we talked about we talked about a little bit about bedding and we talked about the the spur ridges and ridges and staging areas and destination food plots today or food sources today now do you feel that there is a specific time of year that is better for all of these specific areas um Man, pre-rut, rut, post-rut type type scenarios. Like, are you saying is there a time in the year that all these are the best at? Like, if so, or no, here like I'll, I... I'll give you an example. My success most years comes in a staging area during the pre-rut. Okay. And again, like we talked about last week, pre-rut doesn't mean it. The pre-rut is over on October thirty first. I feel like the pre-rut on my farm goes all the way into like the November 5th, 6th timeframe. And then it starts to get real heavy. Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, I shot my, my buck this year on November 4th. The previous year, I think I shot my buck on November 6th, maybe. Maybe it was November 4th again. I think I've killed more deer on November 4th than any other day. Um Okay. And all in most scenarios, it's a, a pre-rut, a pre-rut type deal. So what I'm getting at here is, I love staging areas during the pre-rut. I love getting closer to bedding areas during the rut, rut or okay. or a pinch point during the rut for cruising purposes. So do you have a a favorite location during a specific time of year? You know, the one that's been really recent the last couple of years that has uh, really panned out for me and I've killed deer on is the quote unquote lull. October mm-hmm. 13th, I've killed 
two blocks the last two years on that same day because of a scrape. Michigan? Well, I'm sorry. One was Michigan. One was Illinois. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Yep. But it was based on scrape. Now, I will say food played a, played a role in both of them. Okay. So the one in Michigan, I was on an inside corner uh, of a bean field, and there was a historical scrape right there and i killed him right there okay Okay? because of the scrape he was coming to check the scrape and i killed him right before the scrape and then kill him on the scrape killed him right before the one year before the same day october 13th real hot hot day it was i want to say it was almost 80 degrees but i was sitting on another bean field and this deer comes off the bedding off the off the ridge and he's coming over to investigate a scrape he's he's eating while he's doing that and i shot him in the beans before he got to the scrape Okay. I firmly believe that like those two things, the food and the scrape in correlation helped out a lot. Yeah. So that is, you know, do I want to hang my head on the food or do I want to hang my head on the scrape? I don't know if I want to hang my head on both. I think it was yeah. just the correlation of both or I don't want to hang my head on one. I want to hang it on both. Right. I think the correlation of both and the location I was in, uh, that is, that is the scenario even in Michigan and every year I have a historical scrape. That same one I killed on, I'm going to be sitting on that that same day, October 13th, that time frame, every time. Because yeah. it's just camera data and what I've done on that is just, I really like that. Now, Did that correlate when, with any weather? So, okay, yeah. Uh, this year, and I'm a, I'm a huge fan of rain. I love hunting in the rain. Now, I love hunting in the rain when I know it's going to stop when I'm in the tree. Yes. So, yes. this year, this year... Uh, in Michigan, I got in the stand and I knew it was going to start raining. I, it wasn't raining yet. I got into the tree and it starts raining, downpouring. And I figured it was going to stop. The The radar said it was going to stop, but it wasn't letting up and it was getting, getting be prime time. And I was like, man, I don't know if I'm going to be able to pull this off. And then it stops. The sun comes out a little bit and I look over literally at 35 yards and here he comes. Yep. And, and I'm like, holy shit, like he's yep. coming. And he was in the thick stuff. I couldn't get a shot at him. And then he goes back into the bedding. And I knew there was a couple of satellite does and stuff like that in there with yeah. him. And uh, I had another deer come out from across the field and comes right underneath me. That deer kind of starts working up into the timber. And I think that deer brought him out more. And then he's like, I got to go check this scrape. And it was right after the rain. He, I think he was going to freshen it up. And I just shot him three yards before he could get there. Yeah. And so that was that. But the Illinois one. That was an evening hunt. It was really hot. I mean, so hot. It was in the 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 90s most of the week. And so, like, I want to say it was two days before this, we had some rain. Okay. And I could. it was raining so hard, I couldn't even go hunting. Mm-hmm. And it was going to rain all day. So, I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to do that. And the cameras lit up. Yeah. Okay. And I was glassing the deer in the fields and everything. I'm like, shit. So, I had rain two days after that. So I'm like, I'm going to get in that tree and it was supposed to stop and it rained and it, and it almost got humid. You know what I mean? Yep. And it was hot. I mean, it was in the eighties, but we had like a 10 to 12 degree shift in, in, in temperature down from what it had been. It was so hot. Um, and I got in the tree and I was sweating just because it was so humid, but he ended up coming out, man. And he was, he came out an hour before it was going to get dark and I shot him right wow. there. That's awesome. So, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, that, that reminds me of 2018. And, and 
2016 and 2022 and where <laughs> and I want to say 2012 too where where there was literally a 48 hour rain event I got in the stand I want to say an hour before they said it would stop raining so you know I'm I got my rain jacket on and what happens right after that the, the the first 24 hours after a 48-hour rain event are some of the best deer movement that I've ever seen in my life. In that in mm-hmm. in the pre-rut time frame. Yep. So, yeah, buddy. Yeah, I agree, buddy. man. If, um, you, if you can give me rain, if you can give me rain in that, like, from October 1 to the 20th, I, I'm going to be hunting. I love those days. My favorite days. Awesome. Uh, anything else that we need to touch base on on this episode? I don't know, man. I we covered a lot. Yeah. My brain is like blown. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it, like I don't know about you, but I have specific specific trees. I'm even thinking about right now, or or um, a crick crossing uh, that kind of meets up with a uh, like an eroded bank on a on a crick, where it's just like, man, I wish I was there right now. Just standing there, envisioning <laughs> yeah. the deer that are going to be coming off this hillside. So, um, yep. hey, Aaron, man, really appreciate your time again. Uh, looking forward to our next episode where we can continue these in-depth conversations, man. Yeah, same here, Dan. Thank you. And there you have it. Huge shout out to Aaron. Thank you for taking your t- uh, time out of your day to hop on and talk deer hunting with me and share uh, your experiences with uh, the followers and listeners here. Uh, really appreciate that huge shout out to tethered wasps vortex hunt stand and the woodman's pal uh please go out and support the companies that support this podcast go to itunes leave a five-star review or wherever you download be sure you're subscribing listen to every episode on the sportsman's empire podcast network and uh yeah uh good vibes right good vibes in good vibes out and we'll talk to you next time